for reading uh, the Word. Uh, Today's passage in uh, Romans, uh, and I've entitled the sermon, Standing on the Promise. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Word, and that your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are going to look at this passage from Romans, and um, um, it's part of the lectionary readings. But, you know, I'm not sure if you understand uh, what the book of Romans is about. Oftentimes, we read passages of Scripture, and many of us have favorite verses uh, from the book of Romans, but it's always good to look at the book as a whole uh, so that you get the context and the understand the, the picture that uh, ultimately Paul intended the Roman church to know. Let me give you a little bit of background and history. Um, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, uh, probably in Corinth. And Jerusalem, as you can see, is uh, here. I'm going to try technology, see if it works. Wow, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, and he was headed there, but his ultimate plan was to actually go uh, to Spain. Spain is all the way here at the other end. Oops, doesn't quite match, right? But it writes here. Wait, let me uh, reset that. Yeah. Anyway, you know, Spain is there, and we see that. On the road to Spain from Jerusalem, he basically needed to pass through Rome. He'd never been to Rome. So the church in Rome was not really all that familiar with him. So he wrote this letter to the Romans to introduce himself. And, and many scholars now believe that uh, the book of Romans was really his uh, magna, op- magna opus, his, 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 you know, his theology writ large his understanding of the gospel of grace that God had given him to bring to the Gentiles. And so, you know, in it, you really see the fullest exposition of what Paul understood and believed. But in Rome was a mixed church. There were a whole bunch of Jewish believers, but there were also a whole bunch of Gentile believers. And, you know, as you can see, between Jerusalem and uh, Spain, You know, there's this burning desire on his part. He himself, being a Jew, you know, longed for his people to come to know the truth. But he also had a real passion to bring the Word of God. That was his his commission to the Gentile world, to those who are outside the faith, as it were. And so that's the context in which we find ourselves as Paul begins to uh, unpack this theology that he had and what he believed and the message that he was bringing. So we pick it up here in chapter 4, verse 1, sorry, 4, verse 13. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, And the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul, of course, had to address uh, the church because remember at this time, 
if we read the book of Acts, you know that there was a, a sort of a, a, a controversy breaking up between whether, you know, you could become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. Did you have to keep the Jewish uh, laws to come to faith in Christ? And, and we know where that shook out. I mean, obviously, we are sitting here. None of us here are Jews. We're all Gentile Christians. You know, we realize that it is not in keeping the law that we're saved. And this is the point he's trying to make to the church in uh, uh, Rome. That, you know, it's not the law that saves us. If law-keeping could save us, then faith in Jesus Christ is now and His promise is void. That the cross means nothing. Because if we could save ourselves by doing right, there would have been no need for Jesus to come, for God to send His Son for us. But I also want you to notice from this passage and this uh, uh, section we're looking at, that Paul was not trying to pit the commandment against the promise. You know, later on in, in Romans 7, he points out that the law and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He was not one to denigrate the law. He didn't want to set the law aside. He realized that the law was necessary, but what part does it play? You know, in particular, verse 15, it says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. You know, some people may say, ah, yeah, if that's the case, then better don't bring the law to them. Lah. Right? If there's law, then there's transgression. Therefore, if they don't have the law, they're blameless. You know, that's the thinking some people may have. But again, you have to look at everything in context. In fact, earlier in Romans, Paul points out that that doesn't absolve us. Not really. Right? For all who have sinned without, this is in Romans 2 verses 12 to 16, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Excuse me. Can someone get me some water? <laughs> yeah, thanks. <clears throat> for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of, men's, uh, of men by Christ Jesus. What is he trying to say? Basically, you know, what this sets up for us and helps us to understand when Paul was talking about the law, he was not putting it down, but he was pointing out that, you know, sure, there's no law, there's no transgression, but he's not saying that there is no law. Just because the uh, Gentiles did not have the law, capital L, as in the Torah, the Bible, the revealed Word of God, does not mean that there wasn't a law that continued to rule in their own hearts. That all of us have a conscience that we are all driven by a law, like it or not. And in, in, in so many ways, you know, in, in looking back at that verse, it says where there's no law, there's no transgression. Another way of saying it is this, that where there is law, there is always going to be transgression. That as long as there's a law, like it or not, we are all lawbreakers. And as I showed you from earlier in Romans, the law is ultimately universal. Therefore, you know, the wrath of God 
is uh, uh, um, directed to all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thank you, Agnes. Ah, much better. <clears throat> Where was I? Big law, big L law versus little L law. What do I mean by that? Let me illustrate this. You know, in uh, campuses in the US, there's often this um, drive to succeed, just as there are here in, in Singapore in our, our education system. I think maybe even more so in Singapore, but you know, uh, uh, the, the, the Americans seem to study these things more. You know, there's uh, something which they call the duck syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. The duck syndrome is uh, using the illustration of ducks. If you watch them on a pond, they seem to be gliding effortlessly on the water, on the surface of the water. But if you were able to look under the water, you'll see that their feet are furiously paddling, you know, just to keep going moving, especially if the water is moving water, right, to keep in place. And they, even though they look so uh, 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 placid above, below, they're doing everything to keep in place. And uh, a few years ago, New York Times had an article about this uh, uh, syndrome, not the syndrome itself, but the, 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 what it, it speaks to, the illness that grips campuses across the U.S., and in particular, manifests itself in terms of suicide. This is a demonstration, backpacks to show how many people had died of suicide across U.S. campuses. And, you know, here in Singapore, we are not exempt of that. Suicide rates have been climbing, even though they don't have official rates given out. You talk to counsellors and people who deal with this, they'll tell you it's also a problem. And, and part of what this article talks about is how the pressures of perfection... Uh, weigh heavily on them. In particular, I pull out a quote by Gregory Ellis, who was the Director of Counseling of Psychological Services at Cornell. And, you know, understanding that social media has its... Uh, um, uh, has a part to play in it, because oftentimes, you know, you look at social media, everyone looks healthy and well and they're thriving, but, you know, what goes on deep beneath the surface can be quite different. And he says to students who remark during a counseling session that everyone else on campus looks happy, he tells them, I walk around and think, that one's gone to the hospital. That person has an eating disorder. That student just went on antidepressants. As a therapist, I know that nobody is as happy or as grown up as they seem on the outside. And this, to me, is an example of how the little L law is at work in our lives. That, you know, we have all these uh, hopes and dreams and desires, and whether we like it or not, we never seem to quite measure up to it. In fact, James talks about this. He says in James 4.17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So whether you're inside or you're outside the church, you know, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory. All of us transgress the law, whether it be the big L law or the little L law, that is the reality we all face. So what's the solution? Paul goes on then in verses 16 and 17 to say, that is why it depends on faith. 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's why it depends on faith, is what Paul says. That the promise rests on grace. That it is our faith in Him that, you know, God looks at us and He declares us righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the promise He's talking about. It's this uh, theological, you know, uh, big word called imputation. Imputation means that, you know, God doesn't only declare us innocent of the sins because Christ died for our sins, but He also declares us righteous because Christ's righteousness is placed upon us and He calls us righteous. You know, the problem we often have sometimes in the church is we misunderstand what faith is. Because it's possible sometimes to turn faith into a work. What do I mean? Sometimes we think, you know, oh, because I don't have enough faith, God's not going to do X, Y, Z in my life. Because of my lack of faith, you know, God cannot accept me. That we turn faith into a work that we do. Or the flip side and converse, you know, because we've seen some kind of uh, uh, blessing in our life, we think, oh, we pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, it's because I'm a man of great faith. Or I'm a woman who exercises my faith. Therefore, I see God's favor. And we've turned faith into a work. But faith, you know, this is why Jesus talks about the fact that it's not the size of your faith that matters. He's, he, he uses the illustration of faith the size of a mustard seed is all that's required. Because why? It's not the size of your faith that makes a difference. It's the size of the God in whom you have placed your faith that makes all the difference in the world. And that's precisely what Abraham discovered. And he goes on then in verses 18 to 22, he says this, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But I want you to see this uh, turn of phrase, which I think is really uh, interesting, because it points out in verse 20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, you and I have read through the Old Testament. If you read through Genesis, and you know that, you know, the father of our faith, Abraham, was not always a man of great faith. Right? He did not always believe the promise. In fact, you know, a couple of times, he denied that Sarah was his wife. He, he, he said, no, 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 this is my sister. 
Not once, but twice. Because he was afraid for his own life. He certainly didn't stand on the promise that God was going to give him a destiny and a land and a, 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 a project, a descendants, you know, to be blessed. And then, you know, of course, when he got older in age, he took on uh, the, the wife's servant, you know, to try and be a surrogate, you know, to, to jumpstart the process of God's promise, as it were. And of course, we can trace back to all the problems, a lot of the problems in the Middle East, to that action in, in, in so many ways. And I don't want to get into that. But, you know, the reality is he wasn't always a person of faith. That's kind of what uh, uh, Reverend Joshua was teaching us this week in camp, looking at Peter the rock. He didn't, you know, become the rock overnight. That he had so many incidences in his own life where he had failed time and time again. That, you know, as, as, as uh, um, confident as he used to be, the reality was, you know, he fell far short of what he himself thought of himself, but of what God wanted of him. But you see, God is never finished with us. That his grace is sufficient for all of us, no matter what we go through. You know, you see, Ultimately, when we look at Abraham and we uh, speak to him about how he speak about him as a, as the father of faith, the reality is this: why we look at him in the uh, in hindsight as such a great hero of faith is because he did, to his credit, as best as he could, humanly speaking, he ultimately ignored the facts but trusted the promise. When God said to him, go, he went. Even though he didn't know his destination. And it was along the way that, you know, the promise was unfolded to him. He continued to hold fast to God. And we see his growth in faith, right? Even after Isaac was born, the willingness he had when he went up to the mountain and was told to sacrifice his son, he trusted God that God would provide whether he would provide in terms of a new uh, son, another, another child, or whether he would provide a, a sacrifice as they went up uh, to worship God. And, you know, he did not look and walk by sight, but he walked by faith. And that was precisely what Reverend Joshua was talking about. So forgive me for looking back to that. But, you know, he pointed out how uh, some of the commands that God gave Peter were quite amazing. The first in calling of Peter, how he told him, you know, after they had toiled all night and got nothing, how contrary it would have been for him to, after washing his nets, to go back out into the deep at midday to put your nets out into the deep. It's, it did not make any sense. It would not have computed to Simon, who was a lifelong professional fisherman. Yet he did it. How it would not have made sense when Jesus bid him come to walk on water, you know, in the midst of all the wind and the waves for him to step out of the boat. And yet, he saw God's hand at work. And ultimately, we see, of course, when he ended with the story in the book of Acts, how he and the disciples are told to wait until they received power from on high in Jerusalem. And they did. And God showed up. And that's 
why we are called to live by faith in that sense that faith is not something that comes out full-grown, but whatever little bit of faith you have, exercise it, and God will show Himself, prove Himself faithful. The God that we worship will show up as we continue to exercise our faith and it grows. You see, as you look through this whole passage, what's so uh, clear to me is, you know, Paul was trying to bring home to them this idea of the promise. You know, four times the word, the promise, is used as a noun. You see in verse 13, in verse 14, later on in verse 16, and then as you skip on down to verse 20, it talks about the promise as a noun. But he also then in verse 21 uses promise, had promised as a verb. And the promise is this. It is God who promises. That is what we place our faith in, is a God who promises. Faith is not something we work up. Faith is who we place our faith in. And our faith is placed in the God whom uh, has promised us all things. You know, as I end... I was speaking with someone this week at the camp and we were talking about something and, and the illustration suddenly popped into mind. I don't know how many of you uh, invest for the future. Most of us would, you know, in retirement, you need to set something aside. And of course, putting it in the bank is as good as hiding it under the mattress. Well, I, maybe interest rates have gone up a little bit. It's kind of good, but it hasn't matched inflation. But, you know, so you do investments. And I don't know if you've ever gotten an investment prospectus. Do you ever read the disclaimer? You look at all these words, you have, you know, forget about it. But there's one line that's always there, right? It always comes up somewhere in all these disclaimers. They will put their past performance is not indicative of future results. In other words, they're trying to tell you, even though our funds have done very well in the past, we cannot guarantee you you're going to get such good returns in the future. I'm here to tell you that with God who makes a promise, past performance is indicative of future results. Because the God that we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why Paul ends in this way. He says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The God we worship is faithful. He is committed to us and we know this because of the cross, isn't it? Not only the fact that Jesus died on the cross on our behalf, but also because He was raised to new life. Showing us that, you know, the righteousness that Christ had, that the sacrifice was accepted. That God has washed away our sins because of Christ's blood shed on the cross. But His resurrection proves to us that His uh, uh, righteousness is now placed upon us. And that is what we place our faith in. You know, I want to end with... A quote which I've often used and I think is powerful, and especially you know, in this time when um, we remember the passing of a, a great servant of God, Tim Keller always used to say this I, the gospel is this 
that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And that's the reality of all of us in terms of our sin. Yet, I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That, you know, Christ came and He says, right, in in the Gospel reading today, He was accused of being a friend of uh, tax collectors and sinners, and that certainly was what He was. But He pointed out, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not about law-keeping or ritual. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is what we believe. This is the promise upon which we stand. This is the God whom we worship and we place our faith in. And I'm going to pray for us, but in a moment, uh, as is our custom, we always uh, say the creed. <laughs> you know, and today as we say the creed, I believe, remember that the one in whom we believe is the God of promise. The God who has promises. And His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, aren't they? And He is the one in whom we place our faith. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. God, our loving Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your great love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That even though we were ungodly in our intent and our disposition, even though we were enemies, as it were, Lord, you never forsook us, never forgot us. And today, because we are children, of faith, who follow in the footsteps of Abraham, a great hero of our faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to cling to the promises that you have given us in Christ Jesus, that we find in his word. That's on that basis that we ultimately do become law keepers. Lord, because we find that all your promises are yes and amen that we keep them because, Lord, they benefit us in so many levels. And Lord, we pray that as we go from here, that we bring uh, this faith that we have grown in to a world that is in desperate need of it, to a faithless generation, a generation that struggles to believe in things, to a people that, Lord, have lost their faith in human institutions, in, 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 uh, even in learning or in wealth or even in themselves. And Lord, point them to the one in whom we can place our faith. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your assurance. Thank you, Lord, that you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people sing.